and I've titled the message, uh, Dead to Sin, Alive to God. Romans chapter 6 and verses 6 through 10. Give everybody a moment to find their seat here. And let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's profitable for us as as your people. And Lord, if there's anyone listening that has not yet come to a saving faith in Christ, I pray that even today they would come to Jesus. We commit our time in the word to you now. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You'll note on the overhead, uh, the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God, the the gospel of God, and we've worked our way down to that section in chapter 6 through chapter 8, the sanctification of the believer. Romans presents the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have in the Bible. After an introductory prologue, Paul begins with the great issue of sin. It's our ultimate problem. It's a universal problem. Uh, He shows systematically that all are under the condemnation of sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. His next major theme is justification by faith. How do we get right with God? Well, it's by faith. Uh, Here he presents two great points. Uh, Number one is that the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two is that we are justified by faith alone, just like Abraham. Well, building on this, Paul emphasizes that the whole of humanity is categorized by solidarity or union. Because of our solidarity or union with Adam, we share in his sin and death. When we are born again spiritually through faith in Christ, we enter into a solidarity or union with Christ, and we now share in his righteousness in his life. So note the natural solidarity. Okay, can you help me out? There we go. There. Uh, Natural solidarity with Adam. Uh, Through one man's sin entered and death. 5.12. By one man's offense, many died. Verse 15. Through one who sinned. Verse 16. Judgment which came from one offense. Adams, 5.16. By the one man's offense, death reigned, 5.17. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all, 5.18. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, 5.19. Boy, pretty clear, the solidarity with Adam. Very strong theme in chapter 5 there. Well, likewise, now... We have solidarity with Christ on the basis of faith. I might need your help here this morning. Next slide, please. There we go. Solidarity with Christ on the basis of faith. The grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, 515. Those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ, verse 17. Through one man's righteousness or righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life, 518. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, 519. And then 
that grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, 521. Well, could the flow of Paul's thought be any more clear? I mean, the whole big idea is that of solidarity, union, identification. The solidarity with Adam is contrasted with the solidarity the believer now has in Christ. You have to be a scholar to miss this, and many do. Uh, The major theme of solidarity developed in chapter 5 carries through to chapter 6. Don't miss that. There were no chapter divisions when Paul wrote the letter. The flow of thought continues from chapter 5 into chapter 6. Now, Paul had great length in chapters 3, 4, and 5, has developed the reality of justification by faith alone. We are not made right with God on the basis of any works that we do. We are saved by faith alone, just like Abraham. The sole, single thing Abraham did is believe in the Lord. That's it. That's what Romans 4.3 says. For what does the Scripture say? That's a good question. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it, his faith, was accounted to him for righteousness. Nail that down. It will keep you from much heretical error. False teachers are everywhere. In Romans 4.11, Paul dogmatically states that Abraham is, quote, the father of all those who believe. In Romans 4.16, he plainly says that justification is, quote, of faith, that it might be according to grace, to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We all, if we're saved, are saved on the same basis as Abraham was, that is, by faith. And then, just to make doubly sure that we get it, Paul says this, Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now to him who works, you know, does physical things, whatever they may be, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Works are anything that we do, including religious rituals, such as sacraments or baptism. Anything done physically is a work. Faith is a matter of the heart. The person who does not depend on anything they do, but rather puts their faith in Jesus alone to save them, this is the person who has saving faith. What I'm saying is that all these people who claim to believe in Jesus and yet add baptism or anything else are not really saved. I mean, that's what Paul says in Romans 4, 4 and 5. Him who does not work but believes. Those churches that teach baptism is necessary for salvation, talking water baptism is necessary for salvation, those teaching this are really teaching another gospel. And they should all be shut down, every last one of them. If you think that's a little hard 
then listen to what Paul has to say about those who teach another gospel. In Galatians 1, 8, and 9, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. And that brings us to Romans 6. Having established our solidarity with Christ based on faith alone, we now come to Romans 6. Paul here is not saying how we came to have a relationship with Christ. He's already established that, as seen in Romans 3, 4, and 5. Now in chapter 6, he is emphasizing the fact of our solidarity with Christ, which we entered into at the moment of saving faith, and what that now means to us in terms of Christian living. Paul is making the case that this relationship of solidarity that we now have with Christ has forever changed our lives, has forever changed our relationship with sin and death. Now, in answer to the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, Paul emphatically answers, certainly not, as we saw in Romans 6, 1 and 2. And the reason is that our solidarity with Christ has rendered us dead to sin. And then building on the solidarity theme already established in chapter 5, he says in Romans 6, 3, do you not know, kind of a mild rebuke, you should know, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, Paul is not talking about water baptism here. There is a spiritual reality of baptism, a spirit baptism, and there is a physical baptism. He's talking spiritually here. The whole surrounding context is dealing with our spiritual relationship with Christ based on faith. We are now in union with Christ. The word baptized simply means identification. We are now identified spiritually with Christ. We are now in spiritual union with him. There's no water in Romans 6.3. Note it plainly says, baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptized into his death. This is a spiritual reality established at the moment of saving faith. Just as our union with Adam affected our lives, so now our union with Christ affects our lives. That really is Paul's point throughout this whole context here. A water ritual does not establish a relationship with God. Faith does. And then water baptism is just a testimony to it. Now, water baptism is an important testimony, but it is faith alone that brings justification and reconciliation with God. You know what baptism is? It's like my wedding ring. Let's suppose, just for suppose sake, I didn't, but let's just suppose I lost my wedding ring. Now, that would be a little crisis for us, maybe. But it would not mean that I'm not married, right? I hope you are there. No. Uh, in fact, I grew up in a context of the Mennonites where they never wore wedding rings. Were any of them really married? That's what I want to know. <laughs> of course they were. 
The ring is just a symbol. Now, the symbol or the lack of symbol of my marriage doesn't affect the reality of my marriage, right? Right. And so it is with water baptism. It's a testimony. It's an outward symbol, but it's not the reality. The reality is my faith in Christ and the spiritual realities that go with that related to my relationship with Christ established on the basis of faith. Note uh, a few verses here. 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize. By the way, if, so if baptism is involved in saving a person, that's a really strange thing for Paul to say, right? He says, Christ did not send me to baptize. That's one thing. But to preach the gospel, that's something else. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And then in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, Jew first and also for the Greek. So baptism is something that is outwardly done, a work, while the gospel is the message of what Christ has done that is believed. We are saved by faith alone and not by works. Well, having established the fact of the believer's solidarity with Christ on the basis of faith alone, Paul is now developing the position that it is absurd that a believer continue to live in sin after they are saved. Paul's teaching here blasts to smithereens, hyper-grace teachings that say grace gives us a license to sin. Easy believism that says faith doesn't necessarily change your life. And antinomianism that says we are no longer any form of law whatsoever when in fact we are now under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. Paul emphasizes that as believers, we have been united spiritually in the likeness of Christ's death, and just as surely it follows that we shall be united together in the likeness of his resurrection. And based on that reality, Paul now continues his thought in Romans 6.6. 6. Notice what he says. Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, another knowing, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now again, in Romans 3, 4, and 5, he deals with justification, being declared right with God on the basis of faith alone. We're saved just like Abraham. Faith alone. Romans 6 follows up by dealing with, ready for this? Drum roll. Jeremy, please. No. <laughs> he loves it when I say that. <laughs> um, sanctification. We're now dealing with sanctification. Justification, Romans 3 through 5. Sanctification, Romans 6. How we should now live. That's what Romans 6 is about. Sanctification means to be set apart. Based on our faith relationship with God, we should now live a set-apart life. We should live holy. And here in Romans 6, Paul tells us why, and he tells us how. Living the Christian life is a matter of knowing. Growing and knowing go together. Now, some people who are Christians never seem to grow up. One key reason is because they are stunted in their knowledge. 
Notice uh, Peter, the last thing Peter says is he's signing off here in 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As newborn Christians, we are righteous before God on the basis of faith alone. That's our position. But then we need to be taught how to walk, how to live for God. And this involves a process. A little baby needs to learn to crawl, then to walk, then to run. And the same is true spiritually. Growth is not automatic. There are things you need to know in order to grow and live properly. Now, Paul mentions three interrelated things here in verse 6 related to knowing. First, we need to know that our old man was crucified with him. That is, with Christ. Again, this is a development of the solidarity theme. Our union, our identification, our being joined to Christ. Our old man is our old identity that we had before salvation. Our old man is who we were in Adam. This is the B.C., the before Christ person. This old man, who we were in Adam before salvation, at the moment of faith, was crucified with Christ. The old man is ourselves in union with Adam. The new man is ourselves in union with Christ. Note he is not merely talking about a nature, such as sin nature, because the entire person the entire old man is said to be crucified with Christ. Thus, he is talking about the person we were in union with Adam under, under the mastery of sin. Now, note the old man never changes. There's no hope for the old man. That's what my kids often say. I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's no hope for the old man. He will never improve. He will never reform. He will never get any better. The old man cannot be transformed, no matter how much self-help you give him or how many steps towards improvement he tries to make. The old man always remains fallen and corrupt. You can teach the flesh to behave to a point, but real spiritual change never happens to the old man. The case is so bad, it requires a death. The old man must die. And this is what has happened for us as a new creation in Christ. What we were in Adam has died. Note this co-crucifixion with Christ is a past reality. For you as a believer, it's happened. Was crucified means it's done. It's finished and completed. In conversion, you are immediately identified with a 2,000-year-old reality, namely the cross of Christ. Immediately, you are identified with and find solidarity with the cross of Christ. It's not something you do. It's not a command to be obeyed. 
It is something that God has done at the moment of saving faith. This is simply a fact to be believed. You do not need to deal with the old man, for God has already killed him at the cross. Note the connection between died to sin and baptized into his death in verses 2 and 3. This is God's doing and is a spiritual reality. Those who try and overcome the old man never win. Only God can change our spiritual status from death to life. Only God can release us from the bondage of sin and death. And he does this through the cross, which is applied by faith. Now, those who try and overcome the old man uh, they might look a little better in terms of self-reform, but there's no real lasting spiritual change. In Romans 6, 6, we need to distinguish the difference between our position of being in Christ and our experience. This verse is not about our experience. The old man crucified is a fact of our position, not of our actual experience. A pastor was visiting the Holy Land, and he indicated to the guide that this is the first time he had ever been to Israel. Well, as they went to the traditional site, so-called, of Mount Calvary, where Jesus may have been crucified, the guide asked if anyone had ever been there before. The pastor raised his hand, and the guide said, well, how can this be, seeing you have never been to Israel before? Well, the pastor shared, I was here 2,000 years ago when Jesus died. I was crucified with him. Spiritually speaking, this is true, as taught by Paul here in Romans 6, and it's true for every believer in Christ. The old man in the spiritual struggle of life seems to be very much alive. But here is the point. We cannot go by our feelings or our experience. We must go by what God says. We must go by the facts of God's word, not our feelings. We must go by faith. This is the proper place for name it and claim it. You never thought I'd say that, did you? <laughs> this is the proper place for name it and claim it because it's based on God's word. This is where the walk of faith comes in. Remember, you know this memory verse, many of you, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's a reality. It's a fact. It's no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. There's the key word. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. William Newell says, These words, our old man was crucified with him, are addressed to faith, to faith only. To reason they are foolishness. But ah, what stormy seas has faith walked over? What mountains has faith cast into the sea? How many impossible things has faith done? No Colossians. There's a couple of cross-references here. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds 
and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Note Paul is not commanding anything here in Colossians, but simply recounting spiritual facts. As seen in Romans 6.6, the old man has been put off through co-crucifixion with Christ. It's an established reality. But now I want you to consider the language of Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. We read there, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, here in Ephesians 4, we are commanded to do something, namely to put off the old man and to put on the new man. These are commands. So what are we to make of this? Uh, didn't Colossians 3 say that this is already done? Note this distinction. Colossians 3, 9 through 10 sets forth the fact. While Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 appeals to faith. In Ephesians, we are told to do in faith what our God has already done in fact. The established spiritual facts are in place. But we must now learn to walk by faith and consider it to be so. We were crucified with Christ to the end that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, the body itself is neutral. It's not sinful. Uh, I mean, that's Gnosticism. You know, the body is sinful, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. Uh, no, the body itself is neutral. It's not sinful. However, the body is the instrument that sin uses to do its thing. In our unsaved condition, the body of sin refers to the body as the instrument that carried out sin's orders. The idea here is the body controlled by sin. However, our union with Christ's death has altered our relationship with sin. This is the answer to verse 1. Shall we continue in sin? This reality of being crucified with Christ is to now have a direct bearing on our behavior. You see, the body is still unredeemed as it awaits the day of redemption, as noted in Romans 8.23. As such, the body is vulnerable to being used by sin. It's still subject to corruption, disease, decay, sin, and death. Now, this phrase, done away, is really one Greek word, means rendered inoperative or rendered ineffective. Because of Christ's work on the cross our, and our union with him, sin no longer has ruling power or authority over us. Now, it still wants to make us feel like it does, but it's not true. We no longer have to obey it. And by the power of the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit, we can now live in obedience. The propensity for sin to have its way in our body has now been rendered inoperative. To the end that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Sin is no longer our master. It no longer has power over us. We are no longer in bondage to sin. Things have changed. 
We, we no longer have to sin. Uh, you really have no excuse now. Uh, we may choose to sin, and we do. Sadly, we all stumble in many ways. But we don't have to. We need to know this so that we can live accordingly. Now, it's important to note that when a person is saved, their whole identity is now found in Christ. And Christ's victory over sin, which includes victory over sin's ruling power. No longer are we slaves to sin. It's also important to note that although we are dead to sin, yet we still have the flesh, sometimes called the old sin nature. We are freed from sin as our master, and yet the flesh constantly cries out for gratification. Thus, Christians are really conflicted people. Have you noticed that? We are freed from the power of sin, and yet we still know the constant tension and battle with temptation. In a very real sense, Christians are constantly faced with a choice between yielding to the Spirit and yielding to sin. But the point here is that we don't have to yield to sin. It's no longer our master. It can't tell us what to do. We don't have to listen to it, although it seeks to influence us constantly. Paul in Romans 7 deals at length with the ongoing struggle with indwelling sin. Imagine having a boss who is a tyrant. It's not, you know, sharing time, so we're not going to open it up. But imagine having a boss who is a tyrant. He runs your life. He is constantly calling you on the phone and demanding that you do this or that. But then one day you get a different job, and you have a new boss. Now suppose the old boss continues to call you and demand that you do this or that. You're no longer under any obligation to the old boss. You can sim simply hang up. You're dead to him. This is how it is with sin. It no longer has authority to run your life. Hang up on it already. The body no longer is at sin's disposal. Its power over the body has been rendered inoperative. Its mastery is broken. Verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. The word freed is literally justified, but in context also has the nuance of delivered from. Christ's death for sin is now counted as my death for sin. Christ's victory over sin has freed me from both the penalty as well as the power of sin. You know what death does? It ends all claims. If a slave dies, his master no longer has any control over him. He is now out of the reach of his master. Because of our death union with Christ, sin no longer has any claim on us. We are now dead to it. We are under no obligation to obey the dictates of our sinful nature. Again and again, Paul comes back to the idea of our spiritual union with Christ in his death and how that has now affected our whole relationship with sin. Note our identification with Christ and how strongly this is emphasized. Verse 2, died to sin. Verse 3, baptized, identified into his death. Verse 4, buried with him through baptism into death. 
Verse 5, united together in the likeness of his death. Verse 6, our old man was crucified with him. Verse 7, he who has died. Verse 8, died with Christ. Huge emphasis on our solidarity, our union with Christ in his death. But you might say, it doesn't feel like I'm dead to sin. Oh, I can relate to that, as we all can. A certain man would get up every morning at 6 o'clock to get ready for work, and his wife would get up with him to see him off. One night, the little children needed extra care, and she didn't get much sleep. When the alarm clock went off at 6, she groaned and said, Is that the 6 o'clock alarm? When her husband assured her that it was, she said, It doesn't feel like 6 o'clock. Now, here's the point. It didn't feel like 6 o'clock, but that was the reality. The same is true spiritually. You may not feel like you are dead to sin, but it's a spiritual reality. And you are called to live according to reality. The presence of indwelling sin in your body no longer has the right to trouble your conscience. Your sin was dealt with fully at the cross. You are now fully justified before God. So much so that Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our connection with Adam has ended. Goodbye. Our old man in union with Adam has been crucified. We have died to sin. Our former history is now history. We are now in a brand new relationship with Jesus Christ. We are now a new creation in Christ. And that changes everything for time and eternity. If anyone is in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All the relationships of life have changed. William Newell says, if Gabriel, the presence angel, were to appear before you, uh, your natural thought would be, he is holy, sinless, and I am unholy and sinful. Therefore, I'm not worthy to stand in his presence. But that would be completely wrong. If you are in Christ, you stand in Christ. In Christ alone. And you stand even as he is. That's the point. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Our death to sin is only half the story. We are also united with Christ in his resurrection life. If we died with Christ, which we did... We believe we shall also live with him. Note the word believe here. Faith is the key. We must believe God's facts. God has revealed the facts of our spiritual union with Christ. We, by faith, rest in this reality. We are not in the position, uh, we are now in the position of co-crucified with Christ, and we are also in the position of co-risen with Christ. We share spiritually in his death, and we share spiritually in his life. This is our spiritual position. John Phillips says, The same mighty power which raised up Christ from the dead is at work in the believer's life today. Now, note the word if, if we die. Really, the better translation is since. That's the, that's the sense of the grammar here. Since we died. It's a spiritual fact, an established reality. Even so, we are to now walk in newness of life, as he says in verse 4. 
But this may also look forward to the resurrection of our bodies when we will experience complete and final victory over sin. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is now the third time in chapter 6 that Paul has emphasized the word no in one form or another, as seen in verses 3, 6, and 9. Now, it's important that we know of our union with Christ in both his death and resurrection and what this means to us in terms of our Christian walk. The kind of life we now share with Christ is eternal life that will never again be affected by death. Christ will never die again. He is forever done with death. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, during his earthly ministry, Jesus raised Lazarus back to life. Wasn't that wonderful? Wow, that was a big day. Come forth, Lazarus. And they said, it's a good thing he said Lazarus because everybody in the grave would have come out. But Lazarus came back to life. But really, it wasn't resurrection life, was it? It was more like resuscitation life. Because, you see, Lazarus was raised to life in his mortal, physical body that would need to die again. But that's not true of Jesus. Jesus was resurrected with a glorified body that will never die again. He says in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 18, I am he who lives, was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus is the ever-living one. He defines life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. To be sure, as the God-man, he was dead, but he rose again and now lives forevermore. He says he has the keys. Keys represent authority. They signify control and access. And he has the keys of Hades and of death. Hades is the unseen realm of the dead. Where the dead spirits, those who have died, the realm of the dead refers to the spirit world of departed souls. Jesus has the keys over this realm. We need not fear. Death represents the grave where the material body goes at the time of death. The ultimate concern and fear of people is death. This is the ultimate problem. Only Jesus has the solution. Only he has the key to this realm. Only he can unlock this reality. The destiny of every human being is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, for a very short time, death was allowed to rule over Jesus, only because he submitted to it. But for the sake of saving people, Jesus allowed death to have its dominion over him. While on the cross, the darkness of death reigned over the earth for three hours, and Jesus allowed death to have dominion. It was during this time that in sheer horror, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that is? That's spiritual death. This was an expression of spiritual death. Death means separation. And somehow in a mysterious way that we can't comprehend, God the Father was separated from God the Son on the cross. He took our death. He took our spiritual separation. He took our hell on the cross. The penalty for sin is death, and Jesus on the cross 
fully tasted death, every aspect of death for everyone. Hebrews 2.9. But no more. He conquered death. Death no longer. Never again will death have dominion over him. In life he now reigns over death. And because of our solidarity with Christ, we now share in his victory. We now share in his life. In Christ's resurrection victory, mastery of death over him has ended. And that's true for us as well. The condition of Christ in his resurrection is irreversible. He will never die again. And so it is with us as well. You know what Jesus said? You know what he said. John chapter 11, verse 26. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's a great question. Note how Jesus said this. It's very important. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. When he said whoever lives, he is referring to physical life. You see, you have to believe in this life. You have to believe while you're living. The sense then is whoever is living in this life and believes in me shall never die. Once you die, it's too late to believe. You have to do it while you're living. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for men to die once. And after this, the judgment. You see, death seals the deal. Wherever one is at the time of death, whether a believer or an unbeliever, that is where they will be for all eternity. Whoever lives physically and believes in Jesus shall never die. That is spiritually. In the Greek, never involves a double negative with the idea being never, never die. The emphasis is emphatic. When my mother was dying, one day I was talking to a lady and it came up that my mother was dying and, and she tried to comfort me with some kind of, you know, gobbledygook, <laughs> some kind of comfort words. And I told her, I said, well, my mom, who is a strong believer, uh, my mom is currently in the land of the dying, but she's on her way to the land of the living. And I don't know if this woman ever shut up in her life, but she did then. She didn't know what to say to that. But that's really what Jesus was stressing. Those who believe in him will never, never die. At death, they go to the glory land where they are alive, more alive than they've ever been here. And there they await the resurrection of the body when glorification will be complete. But note that Jesus then said, do you believe this? Again, belief is the ultimate issue. For us as believers in Christ, death is swallowed up in victory. When we get past death, we will be forever done with it, even as Jesus is forever done with it. Never again will we ever have to deal with death. In Christ, we can say death to death. If a believer falls asleep, which is God's word for the believer's physical death, his spirit goes to be with Christ. There is no dark valley. The Bible says for the believer, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Paul said to die is gain, and that to depart and be with Christ is far better. Here's really what awaits those in Christ in the eternal state. Revelation 21, 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Amen. Nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. 
We will then enter into that wonderful era of no mores. No more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more sin. And this is all made possible because of union with Christ, which was established on the basis of faith. Remember how he started chapter 5? Maybe we'll get to this quote eventually, but... uh, we will. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And what do we do there? And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's our hope. In the resurrection chapter, how does Paul bring it to a conclusion? The end of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once. Once. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 10 essentially serves as a summary emphasis of the key point that he's been making all the way through from chapter 6, verse 1 to here. What Christ did in his death and resurrection, we believers now identify with and share in. Here in verse 10, he explains the ramifications of both Christ's death and his risen life. Note the emphasis here in verse 10. The death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. Christ's death is never to be repeated. It was a once for all event. This means it fully accomplished God's intended purpose. By the way, this puts a dagger through the whole concept of the Roman Catholic Mass. You see, Mass is the idea of a re-sacrificing of Christ every time it's performed. You really can't get any more blasphemous than this. And that's uh, the quote I have here. Uh, the Mass, this is a, uh, comes from a catechism for inquirers. The Mass is the sacrifice in which Jesus Christ, through the ministry of priests, perpetuates perpetuates the sacrifice of the cross by his real presence on the appearance of bread and wine. And uh, to be even more clear, uh, the Baltimore Catechism says, the Holy Eucharist is a sacrament and a sacrifice. Christ instituted the Eucharist as the ceremony under which his sacrifice of the next day on Calvary was to be continued through the centuries. The Mass continues the sacrifice of the cross. Very few things are more heretical than that. Christ in his dying breath said what? It is finished. The Bible says very emphatically. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Note the double emphasis here in Romans 6, 9, and 10. In verse 9, it says Christ dies no more. In verse 10, it says he died to sin once for all. Romans 6, 10 says that Christ died to sin. This is the very same language he used in Romans 6, 2 when he says, the believer has died to sin. Whatever it means in verse 10, it must also mean in verse 2. 
Now, other scriptures emphasize that Christ died for our sins, such as 1 Corinthians 15.3. But the emphasis here is that Christ died to sin. The emphasis in Christ dying for our sins is that of paying the penalty for sin. The idea of dying to sin is that of relationship. Sin no longer has any relationship to Christ. He's forever done with it. The power of sin and its effects of death have forever been severed. And so it is for the believer as well. Because we are now in union with Christ, what applies to Christ now applies to us. In union with Christ, we are now dead to sin, which means it no longer has power over us. It no longer has any claim on us. Warren Wiersbe says, we are in Christ, therefore sin and death have no dominion over us. Jesus Christ not only died for sin, but he also died to sin. That is, he not only paid the penalty for sin, he broke the power of sin. Death is final. It is a once-for-all reality. Positionally, you die to sin once. Christ died to sin once for all. And so did you. You do not need to keep dying. As a believer in solidarity with Christ, you died already. You are already dead to sin. This is your established position in Christ. This reality will never change. It's a once-for-all completed reality. Uh, let's see. I think I got this. William McDonald. When the Lord Jesus died, he died to the whole subject of sin once for all. He died to sin's claims, its wages, its demands, its penalty. He finished the work and settled the account so perfectly that it never needs to be repeated. Christ died to sin once for all, but the life, the life that he lives, he lives to God. You see, sin came between Jesus and the Father on the cross. There was a momentary interruption as sin was allowed to have its way. But then in resurrection life, Christ triumphed over sin. Thomas Constable says, Jesus Christ will never have to die again because when he died for sin, he died to sin. This means that when he died, his relationship to sin changed. It was never the same again. Sin now has no power over him. After he paid for our sins, he was free to resume his intimate relationship with God forever. The life that Christ lives, he present tense, keeps on living forever. Never again will his relationship with God the Father be interrupted by sin. And so it is for us as believers. The word death means separation. But although we may die physically, we will never be separated from God. Builds this whole section to this climax in Romans 8. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our solidarity with Adam affected our whole life. We were born with Adam's sin. Likewise, our solidarity with Christ affects our whole life. We are born again with Christ's righteousness imputed to us. In Christ, we are now dead to sin, but alive to God. R. Kent Hughes says, when we have experienced solidarity with Christ, our lifestyle is affected, just as it was by our solidarity with Adam. If one's life has not 
change. And if there's no impulse for further change toward Christ, he or she is very probably not a Christian. Let me wrap this up, shall I? No amens. <laughs> Whatever. The big idea in the Bible is faith. You know, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. In saving faith, we come to believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. We believe he died for our, all of our sins, and he rose again as Lord God over all. That is salvation. That is justification by faith. But then comes sanctification, how we should then live. That is what Paul is dealing with here in Romans 6. Here we find that a major key to sanctification is knowing, knowing. It is vital to know the reality of our solidarity with Christ and what he has accomplished for us and that we now share in his death and resurrection. You know, sometimes Christians put the emphasis on striving to live a holy life. But I submit to you, it begins with knowing who you are in Christ. Three times in Romans 6, 1 through 10, Paul emphasizes knowing our union with Christ. That's where he begins this whole discussion of sanctification. This is the key to living a holy life. Now, George Patton, not necessarily a Christian, but uh, a great general in World War II, he said this, and uh, whoops, I'm sorry, can I go back? Yes, please. Okay, thank you. <laughs> little discussion with myself here. Thank you. Uh, he said, now, if you are going, I don't know if you can read this. It's kind of small for you, but I'll read it. Now, if you are going to win any battle, you have to do one thing. You have to make the mind run the body. Never let the body tell, you, tell the mind what to do. The body will always give up. It's always tired in the morning, noon, and night. But the body is never tired if the mind is not tired. Now, Patton, again, was not necessarily coming from a Christian perspective at all. But in effect, this really is what Paul is teaching us in Romans 6. You know, we know with our mind. And our knowing needs to run how we live. On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation of the Slaves Proclamation announcing, quote, that all persons held slaves henceforth shall be free. Even though it was true, not all slaves immediately acted like it. Many at first did not, are you ready for this? Did not know they were free. They couldn't walk in freedom if they didn't know it. Likewise, spiritually speaking, the believer in Christ has been freed from both the penalty and the power of sin. We need to know this and live accordingly. Well, God help us to live consistently with who we are now are in Christ. And if you're not saved, let me say that there's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved in faith, you must come to Jesus and believe on him as your Savior, who died for all of your sins, and as Lord God Almighty arose again the third day. 
Jesus said, if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Come to Jesus. He can set you free. And if you're already in Christ, realize you're free. Let's stand and have our closing song.